Section six of Stories from the Detectives Album by Waif Wander, also known as Mary Fortune. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. The Fatal Cliff. Professor Wilmot and his daughter Carla, more familiarly known as Charlie, lived in a capacious villa residence close to a favourite watering place on our bay, and with a grand view of the broad water of the said bay that gives one at least a faint idea of the infinite ocean toward which you can look past cape shank from the position i write of the professor when i introduced him to you was sitting rigidly upright in a chair made to be lounged in and he was looking from over his spectacles and under his black velvet skull-cap at charlie who occupied a chair at the same table near him and who was at this moment leaning her eyes wearily on her left hand while the other dropped the pen it held to the page of an ms before her nothing could be more unlike a girl to be called charlie than fair carla wilmot there was nothing masculine or even hoyden-like about her petite graceful figure and nothing but intelligence and sensibility of temper in the broad brow with its crown of wavy sunny hair and the soft blue eyes and sweet rosy lips her father's name was carlo and a fond young wife had insisted on her first and only babe being called Carla. Thence, loving tongues and laughing lips had dubbed the one household pet, Charlie, as the little feet began their patter. So it was, that to-day those who knew the professor's daughter well called her Charlie still. At this moment Professor Wilmot did not look too well pleased. His grey brows were bent as he gazed at the girl. She was a pretty enough picture in her fair, young, and tasteful attire to unbend the stiffest brow, but I suppose our professor did not see the picture in a good light, for his voice was slightly querulous as he asked, "'What is the matter, Carla?' Now the professor never called her Carla, save when he was composing and dictating to her some extra metaphysical paragraph of his forthcoming work, The Cosmical Structure of Plumo's Life, or when he was annoyed with her, so she hastily uncovered her face. "'I've got such a pain in my forehead and eyes, papa. The words I write seem running into each other.' "'And no wonder. I'll tell you what it is, Professor. You'll have your daughter laid on a sick-bed before you know where you are if you keep her tied down to this writing, day after day.' Carla's fair face flushed, and her eyes brightened as she rose to greet the visitor, while the Professor stared at him, as if he was one of the most unexpected, not to say unwelcome, visitors in the world. "'We didn't hear you, Dr. Bengerfield,' Carla smilingly said, as she laid her little hand in a strong brown palm outheld to her. "'How the mischief did you get in?' the Professor inquired rather sullenly. "'By the door, my dear sir, in the way visitors are usually admitted, only that, as I knocked twice, and got no invitation, I entered without permission. "'Papa is always glad to see you, doctor.' Carla said timidly, as Dr. Bengerfield seated himself, but the good professor was not, just then, in the humour to endorse his daughter's assertion. "'What do you mean, John Bengerfield, by asserting that I will have Carla laid upon a sick-bed? Do you intend to insinuate that, in requiring her services for an hour or two daily, as my amanuensis, I am injuring her health?' "'Bah! Stuff!' and the irate gentleman pushed his velvet cap more off his forehead and took a huge pinch of snuff i mean to insinuate nothing my dear old friend 
I mean to assert that Miss Carla's health is likely to be very permanently injured by the treatment you are subjecting her to. I wonder where your eyes are, sir. It is as plain as daylight that your daughter is suffering severely from her constant employment at your writing-table. Do you suppose a young girl can enjoy such total deprivation of light and air and society? God bless my soul! ejaculated the astonished professor, as he sat still more rigidly upright, and stared wildly at the now blushing and trembling Charlie. I am not ill, papa. Indeed, pray do not be alarmed. But I confess, I should like to get the air a little oftener. My head aches almost continually of late. Well, 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 to think of this. Put on your hat, child, and go out with the doctor. I wouldn't have you ill for all the world. Yet the poor man cast a piteous look at the unfinished sheet of manuscript on which poor Carla had been engaged, and where her pen had left a careless splash of ink when she dropped it wearily. "'Yes, Carla, do. Go and get ready. My trap is at the door, and I will take you for a drive.' The girl looked at the speaker with a grateful smile, and having kissed her father by way of compensation for the loss of her services for the time, left the room to prepare for her drive. When the door had closed behind her, the doctor laid his hand kindly on the professor's shoulder. "'Don't look so distressed, my friend. It will do your own brain no harm to have a rest, and I will make an especial hour for you to-night, and take Carla's place as secretary.' "'Will you?' and Professor Wilmot's face brightened. "'Well, that's kind now, John. But you don't think Charlie's really ill, do you?' "'No, no, only too closely confined.' You must not forget how very young she is. She's twenty-one, Professor said thoughtfully. Why, John, this is the twenty-third of March. It is nineteen years this day since Catherine. And he covered his face with his hands. Carla is so like her, so like her. The words were lost in a groan, and the Professor's manuscripts were forgotten. Nineteen years are long enough to bury the dead, my dear old friend. John Bengerfield said softly. Don't look back so far. Here is Carla. Don't, pray don't let her see your distress. The father was himself again, as fresh and blooming and bright. His fair girl left another kiss on his forehead, ere she tripped away with the doctor. You can arrange the next chapter while I'm away, papa, and I will make up for lost time when I return. You would have been doubtful of Dr. Bengerfield's veracity, had you seen the bright flush of health and happiness on Carla Wilmot's cheek, and the soft light in her blue eyes as the doctor gathered the reins in his hands, and his snug trap whirled along the cliff road. The sea air was fresh, and the sky aglow with sunlight, tampered by fleecy white clouds. On the beach the slow waves broke in ridges of curling foam, and above them seagulls disputed possession of some floating weed. The world looked very fair to Carla that day and John Bengerfield's handsome face was full of smiling sympathy as he watched her face. "'You enjoy this, Charlie?' "'Oh, yes, it is delightful. How much I am obliged to you for bringing me out. Where are you driving to, Doctor?' "'I am taking you to make a morning call on a lady, Miss Wilmot. What do you think of my temerity?' "'A call on a lady? Are you jesting?' "'No. Pray, don't open your eyes so widely, or I shall not dare to explain.' Do you remember Rose Cottage? The little place where old Mr. Denby died? Yes, it has become almost a ruin, has it not? It has been done up and revivified and decorated until you will scarcely recognise it. 
a widow lady named Randolph has taken it, and been placed under the care of your humble servant. Is she ill, then? Only a sort of general debility, I think. But my good friend Dr. S., of Melbourne, has sent her to me for change of air, and furnished me with all sorts of credentials, Carla. She seems amiable and lonely, and I am going to take you to call on her, because I think you are in need of female society as much as Mrs. Randolph is. Do you think Papa will like it? Charlie asked uneasily. My dear girl, Papa will not trouble his head, so long as we get him on with the cosmical structure of Plumo's life. And when Mrs. Randolph returns your call, she will fascinate the professor as she has done me. Carla looked up into the doctor's face and laughed as she met his smile, yet there was an uneasiness left by some word or look of his she could not have expressed in words. They soon reached Rose Cottage, a pretty, unpretending little home, embowered in climbing plants, and with latticed windows, within sound of the sea, and Mrs. Randolph herself received them with frank welcome under her little veranda. She was a small woman in every way, so slight and active of build that you wondered at the bleached hair under the widow's cap. Her mourning was plain but handsome, and the eyes which gleamed through gold-rimmed spectacles seemed fresh and piercing. Carla took a fancy to her, and gave the widow a warm invitation to return her call as soon as she could. "'Well, how do you like it, Charlie?' was the doctor's first question on their return home from visiting the widow at Rose Cottage. "'Very much indeed. How nice it is to have an educated lady within visiting distance. She is very amiable, I am sure, and not so old as she looks. Do you not think so, doctor?' "'Yes, the doctor thought so too.' said she could scarcely be more than forty-five or so, and had an idea that family troubles had pressed very heavily on her health and spirits. Indeed, Mrs. Randolph had hinted as much to him. That evening was the beginning of a very intimate acquaintance between Carla and the interesting stranger. They were almost daily together, and before a month had elapsed, Dr. Bengerfield peered into the professor's study and saw the widow quietly seated in Carla's place, busily transcribing a folio sheet of the professor's great work. Carla was in the garden, and Dr. Bengerfield joined her. "'Well, didn't I tell you how it would be, Charlie? I peeped into Papa's study just now, and see Mrs. Randolph has quite supplanted you.' "'Yes, wasn't it kind of her?' the sweet girl said, as she gave her little hand to be pressed by the doctor's brown, nervous paw. "'I was getting my old headache, and she kindly offered to release me for an hour. You see—' I am taking advantage of it. I don't like these headaches, the doctor said abruptly, and a shade came over the handsome bearded face. Why? she asked innocently, as she offered him a fresh rose from a bunch she had just gathered. He took the rose and looked at the pretty face anxiously as he inhaled the perfume of the flower, but he made no reply, save the fact that he tossed the rose away as though it had stung him. What is the matter? Carla went on anxiously also. "'Do you not like my rose?' "'It had a thorn in it, Carla. "'What do you say to another drive this afternoon?' "'I should like it so much, but I can't. "'I promised Mrs. Randolph to walk with her on the cliffs "'while Papa is having his nap. "'You will take me another day, will you not?' "'Yes.' "'What do you always go to the cliffs for, Carla? "'You seem to have quite a fancy for that path. "'I wish you wouldn't go there.' "'The doctor spoke quite irritably, "'and Carla looked in his face with wonder.' It was such an unusual thing for her old friend to show temper of any kind that she was puzzled. 
first the rose and then this what could be the matter you know there is no choice i sometimes go on the beach but there is no view there and the cliff is much pleasanter yes yes never mind me charlie i'm bilious i think good-bye for the present and he was gone carla listened to the fading sound of the doctor's rapid wheels and then she re-entered the house the professor was sound asleep in his chair with his handkerchief over his head the folio was finished and mrs randolph had disappeared just at that moment however the widow appeared from the garden bonneted and shawled ready for their walk where have you been dear i have just been to look for you only just come in how could i have missed you i wonder shall we go for our walk now it's a lovely afternoon yes it was a lovely afternoon and with the soft fresh air blowing in their faces carla and the widow stood upon the cliff and looked seaward white-sailed ships gleamed away past the lighthouse with only the seeming illimitable sea beyond them and big waves splashed heavily at the foot of the steep cliff on which they stood the arm of mrs randolph was locked in that of carla and as they paused on the short turf the widow drew carla forward as if to peer down the dangerous height near where they stood oh don't please the girl exclaimed as she drew back i never could bear to look down there is it possible my love now i never should have believed your head was so weak did you always feel that way yes ever since i could remember i suppose that is the reason dr bengerfield objects to my walking near the cliff though indeed i do not remember ever telling him i felt so dizzy here she added naively does the doctor object to our walks then love to my walking on the cliffs only mrs randolph he spoke of it only to-day but he seemed put out about something the doctor is a very old friend my dear miss wilmot and is deeply interested in you yes oh yes he has been papa's dearest friend ever since i can remember indeed i believe he was mamma's medical attendant as well as friend and the soft voice dropped there was a pause and then in a tone of deep sympathy the widow asked do you at all remember your dear mother my child no not at all i was only two years old when she died i have often tried to fancy what it must be to remember a mother but cannot i was too young but you often speak of her dr bengerfield and your good papa often speak about her to you of course never carla said and i have often wished they would but it seems a painful subject and of course i could not wish to pain papa of course not my love but it seems a very sad thing to me that a child should be permitted to grow up in ignorance of the dear mother who bore her it looks as if there was something to conceal it is not too much to say that carla looked at the speaker in wild wonder conceal what could there be to conceal many things my dear which your innocent mind can have no conception of you know something mrs randolph carla cried excitedly you are hiding something from me which i ought to know my dear child the widow exclaimed and carla stopped and seized her arm don't i beg of you don't excite yourself in that manner why should i not excite myself mrs randolph can i not see that you are hiding something from me about my dear mother why can you not tell me what is it that i must not know why has papa or the doctor never told me what you know my dear miss wilmot i am grieved beyond measure that you should have got such a strange impression on your mind through any inadvertent word of mine the widow said 
with apparently deep concern. I assure you, I know nothing but what the common gossip of the place has informed me of, and you must be aware that, if your dear papa and his confidential friend have not thought proper to enlighten you, it is not my place to do so. Carla looked seaward again, and relaxed her grasp of Mrs. Randolph's arm. What had happened since she saw the water and sky a few minutes ago, to make earth and sea and clouds one dizzy whirl of horror to her? She put both hands to her head, and cried out loudly, "'I'm going mad!' And the widow's reply was a peal of laughter that awoke echoes among the brown rocks. The laugh seemed to sober the poor girl and she stared into Mrs. Randolph's face with parted lips and bated breath. "'I cannot help it, my dear, to hear you, the petted heiress of Professor Wilmot, talking about going mad, simply because you have taken it into your head that some secret is being withheld from you, is enough to make anyone laugh. Though doubtless there are many who would have been greatly annoyed. Fortunately, however, I am possessed of a tolerable temper, and can afford to keep it in this instance.' "'I beg your pardon, Mrs. Randolph.' the poor girl said submissively. I am afraid I have been very foolish, but I must ask papa about this. About what, dear? Oh, about your dear mother. Well, if you wish, of course, but do let me remind you that your papa is an old gentleman and accustomed to quiet. If you excite or annoy him, no one could answer for the consequences. If you insist on an explanation, pray ask it from your friend, Dr. Bengerfield. Carla could not speak. She only turned her face homeward, and began, totteringly, to make her way toward it. "'Stay,' said Mrs. Randolph emphatically. "'Before you go, Miss Wilmot, let me remind you that you have no right to injure me by repeating my name in this matter. If you promise to mention my name in no way, I will make you a promise in return. Should your friend the doctor refuse to satisfy your lawful curiosity, come to me, and I will tell you your mother's story.' I will not say anything about you, Carla said weakly, and then she went away with a sort of blind instinct that led her home. Once or twice she met old residents of the place, who, when she passed with her hand pressed to her forehead, turned to look after her and shook their heads. They had always been afraid of something for the professor's beloved daughter, but what could they have been afraid of? Carla went into her father's study. He had just awakened from his nap, and was carefully examining Mrs. Randolph's sheet of copy, spectacles on nose. "'She does it pretty well, Charlie,' he observed, without noticing his daughter's white and rigid face. "'But not like you, my love. Are you going to help me before dinner?' "'My head aches so, Papa. I cannot. I'm going to lie down in the drawing-room for a little.' Professor Wilmot lifted his head and looked anxiously after her, and he dropped the manuscript to the ground as he rose and rang the bell. It was answered promptly by his own man, who stared at the unusually agitated face of his master. "'Smith, put on your hat and go down to Dr. Bengerfield yourself, instantly. Tell him to come up at once and say nothing to anyone else. Mind, the matter is pressing. Tell him I am not well.' Smith executed his errand carefully and promptly, and before half an hour had passed, the doctor was walking rapidly toward his friends. He walked with an anxious face, which the circumstances did not seem to warrant, and he went straight into the study without knocking. The professor was sitting bolt upright in his chair, grasping its arms, and his feet were actually on the precious folio sheets that bore the fair widow's calligraphy. "'What is it?' the doctor asked quickly, as he looked around for Carla. 
Oh, John, it is that headache. I am so frightened. I never saw Charlie looking more like her poor mother. What shall we do? What shall we do? Where is she? Dr. Bengerfield asked abruptly, while a deep furrow grew between his brown eyes. Lying down in the drawing-room. Don't tell her, John. Don't tell her. I'll tell her nothing. And do be calm, my friend. I do not believe there is anything whatever the matter with our Charlie but your cursed writing, and he kicked the papers fiercely with his departing feet. The helpless old man looked down at the papers, but he hadn't the heart to pick them up, and presently, when his spectacles followed, and lay there at his feet, he stared at them with tear-filling eyes, and wondered what they were. Carla lay in a great chair drawn near a window, overlooking the cliffs. Even in her reclining position, she could see the spot where Mrs. Randolph had seemed to drop a shroud round her, and shut out the sunlight and the sea and the sky. She could only think, she could not weep, she could not pray, she could only dream that it was night, and that she was longing for morning. The sight of Dr. Bengerfield, however, recalled all she feared, and all she determined to ask him. A hot flush mounted to the blue-veined temple, and then left them paler than before. "'What is the matter, Charlie?' he asked, softly, as he seated himself beside her, and took her hand gently. "'Is it this detestable headache again?' "'No. Yes, my head does ache, but it's not that.' She sat up and looked him steadily in the eye, and, strange to say, John Bengerfield trembled at meeting the eyes in which he had never before seen anything but the sweetest gentleness and affection. "'My head aches, but not as it used to ache. Do you know anything that ought to make my heart ache, Dr. Bengerfield?' The doctor got pale now, but he steadied his voice to reply. "'I am afraid your head is worse than you like to acknowledge, Carla, or you would not speak to me thus. What has come over you?' "'What indeed?' she echoed bitterly. "'But you need not ask. You know.' "'I? How should I know what riddle you are driving at me?' he returned with feigned anger. "'If you wish me to understand, you must condescend to explain. What have I done that you stare at me with such accusing eyes?' "'You have hidden a secret from me all my life that I should have known, that I had a right to know. "'What secret about my mother have you hidden from me, Dr. Bengerfield?' "'Now the doctor's face grew hot and aflame. "'He got up and walked hastily to and fro, as a man who was debating with himself what to do. "'Carla watched him as he paced up and down the long apartment, "'watched him with rigid lips and panting bosom. "'At last he sat down and spoke firmly. "'If your poor father had heard the words you have just spoken to me, Carla, I believe they would have killed him. I have not spoken them to him. I have spoken them to you. Are you going to reply? See, I believe you are driving me mad. And again she lifted her two hands to her head. Now every fibre of Dr. Bengerfield's frame trembled, and his voice was unsteady as he spoke. Listen to me, Carla. As you value your father's happiness and your own, and mine, he added after a pause, I will tell you all you wish to know when you have duly considered if it is right to ask me for that we have hidden from you entirely for your own good. I do not ask who hinted this to you, but I know it was some enemy, whom I shall discover and punish if it be in the power of man to do it. Can you not consider what trouble you may be bringing on yourself by your curiosity, and be reasonable for the sake of all who love you? It cannot be unreasonable for me to know what all the world knows, the poor girl persisted and John Bengerfield groaned aloud. I cannot tell you anything now, Carla. For heaven's sake, wait until tomorrow. As her friend rose abruptly and left the room, Carla fell back in her chair, 
and her eyes once more wandered to the fatal cliff. Her whole nature seemed changed, while her sweet gentleness gone. She was conscious for the time of no love for her father, no affection for her friend. She only felt a fierce determination to find out the story of her mother, which had been hidden from her, and there she sat and planned, while the doctor returned to the anxious professor. "'I don't know what to make of it, my dear friend. Colour is excited and anxious, and I am afraid she has got some hint of her poor mother's story. She really knows nothing, however, and I shall see that your housekeeper administers a strong sedative in a cup of coffee ere I leave the house. In the meantime, take no notice and go on with your work.' He stopped as he spoke, and lifted the spectacles and the neglected sheets, and as he laid them on the table, the writing caught his eye. "'Whose is this?' he asked quickly. "'The widow's?' And the professor nodded. Such a sudden light flashed into the doctor's eyes as they devoured that paper, as would have astonished you, and the professor too, had he noticed that the sheet was crumpled into his friend's pocket. Promising to return during the evening, he gave his directions as to the sedative to Mrs. Staines, whom he could fully trust, and then he hastened home. Dr. Bengerfield's house was a bachelor one. He had only Mrs. Kempson and Pat Corcoran, the latter being groom and doctor's man generally. No sooner had our friend reached home than Pat was summoned to his master's presence. Pat was tall and Pat was thin, but Pat had sinews of iron and was the best wrestler in the district. "'Shut the door, Pat, and come here,' said the doctor, and Pat obeyed like a machine. "'Pat, you're clever enough for anything if you can only keep from the bottle. Now, I have a very particular piece of business for you. Do you think you can promise to withstand it for a couple of days?' "'If it's the bottle, your honour means, sure. You know I can. When did I ever lave the horse without his breakfast or his supper or his bed? Bottle or no bottle?' "'Yes, I know that's right.' but what I am going to give you to do would be ruined by a word, and you know a glass makes you talk. When I tell you that Miss Carla's happiness is concerned in it, I know you will try. Indeed, no, I will, Martha. Try me. You know that Mrs. Randolph at Rose Cottage? Yes, sir. Well, I want you to watch her for a couple of days, and nights too. Find out where she goes and who she sees. Whatever you see or hear, let me know instantly. Yes, sir. Did you ever see her servant, sir? no why because she's the queerest old hag i ever seen sir she wears a black gown and a cap for all the world like none sir and her face is whiter than a chalk well never mind pat but attend to what i told you you need not mind about your duties here i shall get jack to come and do them for a day all right sir and pat scraped himself out Dr. Bungerfield sat long with that page of manuscript he had appropriated from the professor on the table before him. Some other documents he had taken from his desk, and with an elbow on either side of them, and his head supported on his hands, he studiously compared them. It was a fine head, the doctor's, broad and massive, and with a great crop of brown hair upon it, and there was the strength of a firm will in the square jaw. But there was an unusual vacillation just then in his face, and a great cloud on his bent brow. It is the same, there is no doubt of it, he said. The same, though changed. Oh, what a fool I have been! What a fool! And how blind! He got up and put away the papers, and then, in his old way, when puzzled or annoyed, paced the chamber to and fro, paced it with an unsteady step, and muttered words of little meaning save to himself. Some of them followed his thoughts to Carla, some to her father, 
others, to whom did they go with fierce anathemas under his breath? Poor Charlie, poor child, what a blow for her, yet can I keep it from her? See how a man's folly hunts him down. If my poor old friend had only taken my advice long ago, perdition seize that vile woman. Evening fell, and while its shades were lying low upon the misty sea, the doctor returned to Wilmot Villa. The professor sat again in his wonted seat, to which he had returned after dinner. He was glad to see his friend. Carla was much better. She had taken a little dinner and retired to her own room. She said her headache had quite gone, and the professor thought his friend John had been mistaken in Charlie's having guessed or heard anything. She seemed quite cheerful, and the fond father was jubilant. Retired to her own room? Who then was this wrapped in a mantle, and with a hood falling over her white face, that stole in the great evening toward the fatal cliff? Was it to inhale the sea air, or let the cool night air play upon her burning forehead, that poor Charlie crept to the grassy brink of the cliff, and looked down shudderingly to the treacherous waves below? Ah! No! Her destination was Rose Cottage, but an irresistible fascination seemed to draw her to the dreadful place though she dreaded and feared it beyond all earthly things. It was with the very effort of desperation that she at last dragged herself from the spot, and with a wild scream of the seagull in her ears, fled towards Rose Cottage. With the perfect rest of an amiable heart and immaculate conscience, Mrs. Randolph reclined in a deep chair, drawn near a pleasant coal fire in the grate of her little parlour. Her cap was white, and its broad weepers floated gracefully over her shoulders. A shaded lamp stood on the pretty table behind her, and her petite figure was the picture of rest and comfort. But appearances are deceitful, as we know, and the widow was at that instant in a most uncomfortable state of mind. She was all ears and anxiety, listening, so that the sound of a rising wind that moaned through the roses aggravated her as it impeded some other expected sound. Was this it? A light quick step on the veranda and a timid knock at the door. In an instant, Mrs. Randolph was on her feet and at the open door. "'Pray, come in, Miss Wilmot. I have been expecting you.' "'Expecting me?' the poor girl said as she followed the widow inside, and almost fell into the seat offered her. The hood fell back from the pale face, and she sat and gazed with wild yet weary-looking eyes at her hostess. "'Oh, I knew you would come,' the widow cried with a laugh. I was certain you could not resist the fascination of a private interview with your dear friend. Do not mock me, poor Carla said. I am very unhappy. Mock you? I? How can you be so cruel as to hint at such a possibility? But of course, I knew our dear friend Dr. Bengerfield would not give you the desired information, and that you would certainly come to me for it. You see, I was right. No, he would not tell me. But what he did say has only rendered me more anxious to know the worst. I could not rest. I could not sleep until I came. Did you visit the cliff on your way? The widow inquired with apparent irrelevancy. Yes. How did you know that? I could not help going there. No, you could not help it, my love, Mrs. Randolph said as she raised a fan between herself and the fire, and stretched out her pretty feet on the fender and she shook her head with a strange smile as she spoke. "'What do you mean? Oh, Mrs. Randolph, you do not surely wish to torture me. Tell me all you know, though it should kill me. I am but a poor girl, and you are, no doubt, a clever woman.' 
but what harm could i ever have done that you should so torture me carla clasped her hands as she spoke and bent forward to look pleadingly in the widow's face and she laughed the same laugh which had horrified poor charlie on the cliff harm to me my dear how could you but see i shall tell you the story you long to hear and then you will be at rest eh carla's breath came fast did you know my mother mrs randolph do not ask too many questions my love it might be dangerous but before i proceed tell me did you keep your promise did you mention my name to dr bengerfield no he knows nothing another question miss wilmot do you know where and how your dear mother died here of course in the house where we now live at least i have always understood so you have been mistaken as you will hear certainly the last days of the first mrs wilmot were passed under the same roof which shelters you though she did not die there peacefully as she ought to have done the first mrs wilmot oh mrs randolph you're mistaken it is all a terrible mistake my father was not married twice he really was my love and the second time to a most charming woman one of the sweetest and dearest creatures it has been my lot to meet in life and here again the mocking laugh rose and tortured poor carla's ears how they have misled and deceived you my child and how very cruel it was of them what could have been your dear papa's and the amiable doctor's motive for hiding even the existence of your stepmother from you existence it is not polite to repeat words so my love yes i said existence for that amiable stepmother of yours still lives and is i hope and trust enjoying herself as well as i am at this moment carla fell back helplessly in her seat and gazed at mrs randolph wonderingly was it possible she thought that this lady was mad did this account for her terrible words and strange laugh and mrs randolph read the thought in the innocent young eyes and replied to it with a smile that was half a sneer no my dear i am not mad madness is entirely in the family but not thank heaven on my side but i beg of you to let me tell you this story and have done with it it is getting late and they may miss you at home do you know my love that sitting there with your white face and wild eyes you remind me strangely of your dear mother she had such wild eyes oh you did know her you have seen dear mamma after all so you have discovered my secret after all eh well let it pass it does not matter now mrs randolph returned with her disagreeable smile yes my love i did know her she was about your age when i first saw her and she had the prettiest little baby on her knee a little girl baby with blue eyes and fair sunny hair i was it i mrs randolph carla asked with absorbing interest yes my dear it was really you well to go on your poor mamma beautiful as she was not to flatter you by implication my love your poor mamma was afflicted with a dreadful disease that rendered the greatest care necessary and a young and pretty woman was engaged to devote all her time to the young wife well my dear i am sorry to say that in spite of all the care and watchfulness your dear mother died and your dear papa rewarded the nurse's devoted attention by making her his wife a few months after carla flushed and half rose from her seat but controlled herself with an effort was this the secret they kept from me mrs randolph 
that i had a stepmother no my dear it was only one of the secrets there were one or two more your mother's terrible malady was one and its still more shocking results was another what was it what was the malady that makes you look at me in that awful way speak or i shall go mad ah just so dear miss wilmot that is why you remind me so much of your beloved but unhappy parent see now how your eyes flash and your hands fly to your head your mother was mad my love and you are mad too it is grievous but very true carla rose and the mantle fell to her feet and mrs randolph rose too and faced her in the young face was a terror and a horror beyond words in the elder a mocking fiendish triumph sickening to witness carla's hands were indeed gripping her temples and her face was white as cut stone i have told you two of the secrets my dear child let me conclude with the third your poor dear ma did not die in her home for the very simple reason that one night a night such as this it was with a lonely cold wind sounding on the sea she escaped from her keeper and threw herself over the very cliff you are so fond of haunting my dear yes she preferred the embraces of the cold sea to the knowledge of her own madness and very sensible it was of her don't you think so carla dear madness is so terrible a thing such a shriek filled that room and rang out into the night as few lips have omitted as carla turned and fled out of the cottage and away with the speed of despair on the cliff road homeward or where mrs randolph uttered an exclamation of joy and ran to the door to look after the flying form of the distracted girl from the veranda she could just catch a glimpse of her slight figure in the starlight as she neared a turn of the road but to the widow's astonishment she saw a darker form speeding after the poor child with a speed that promised to overtake her soon who could this person be mrs randolph asked herself it looked like a man who was it possible might have overheard all or part of what had passed between her and miss wilmot the idea made the widow very uneasy and as she turned to shut the door she spoke sharply to her servant who was standing so close to the door of the parlour as to suggest the idea of another spy no wonder the strange appearance of mrs randolph's servant had attracted the notice of pat corcoran as her mistress turned suddenly and as it were caught her watching or listening she was standing like an image of galvanized death in an angle of the passage her face was of an unearthly pallor her hollow eyes strangely lurid her dress of black made without fold or pleat clung to her rigid angular figure a borderless white linen cap was on her head a white apron before her and a large white collar that was almost a cape lay upon her shoulders you would have thought her dead only that her eyes gleamed so and her fingers worked nervously as mrs randolph scolded her what are you doing here barton did i not give you strict orders to keep to your own premises this evening if i thought you presumed to watch or listen i should discharge you on the spot there are no candles the woman said like an automaton i must go to the store you shall do nothing of the kind i am going out myself and do not choose the cottage to be left as you have been so neglectful as to forget providing yourself with candles until this time in the evening you can go without light the woman moved towards the kitchen without a word of reply and mrs randolph stepped into her bedroom to prepare for her late walk it was not far by a cross path 
to Wilmot Villa, but, after her interview with Carla, was it likely the widow would venture thither? Ah, few were aware of what that fair dame was capable. On leaving his master, Pat Corcoran made his preparations for keeping watch on Rose Cottage. They were not many. He simply put on a big muffler, filled his pipe, and stuck a whole fresh plug of tobacco in his pocket. He would gladly have increased those preparations, and looked longingly at a small tin flask that lay in the corner of an empty manger in the stable, and shook his head discontentedly. Saw a harm a small taste of whisky would have done a poor chap agin them cork cliffs, but I promised the master, and it's for Miss Carla. And so the honest fellow turned his face resolutely away from the manger, and started for Rose Cottage. It was not difficult to keep an undetected watch on that simple little place, for the back fence was broken down in many places, though the gaps were hidden by a great tangle of rose hedge. The place was so small that the little kitchen was almost close to the hedge, and there was not twenty yards between the hedge and the cliff. Pat amused himself by watching the movements of the strange servant for a long time, as he hid in the hedge, taking an occasional whiff of his pipe as he dared. Her unearthly appearance deeply touched the inherent superstition of his uncultivated Irish nature. The immobility of her white face, the machine-like steadiness of her movements, fascinated his eyes, until a hundred memories of his native land made the sweat pour from his face. Was she a banshee or a witch? Would she presently dart the evil eye at him and wither a limb? He would have given up whisky for a month to have fled home to safety in the doctor's stable, but he daren't disobey a good master and get laughed at for his foolish fears. How glad he was when it grew dusk, and he could raise himself from his cramped position, and venture to the front of the house without fear of being observed. Then it was that he almost met face to face Miss Wilmot on her way to see Mrs. Randolph, and learn the secret it was better that she had never known. And then it was that, knowing his master's deep interest in the young lady, he got as near the veranda as he could, so as to hear the sound of sneering and pleading voices, both of which he recognised. But when that fearful scream saluted his ears, the front door opened so quickly that, to avoid being detected, Pat had to make so sudden a retrograde movement that he fell flat on his back, and lost some precious seconds ere he gained his feet again, and ran after the young lady. Something was wrong, he knew, for there was fear and agony in the sound of that scream, and unless under the influence of great excitement, Miss Carla would never rush in that undignified manner along the road. So the faithful fellow followed hard after, determined to keep her in sight till she reached home. Onward sped the half-maddened girl, with but one idea left, that she was the daughter of a madwoman who had thrown herself from the cliff. Insane blood was boiling in her veins. She knew it. She felt it. What would be better than that she should follow her mother and hide her secret over the cliff? Mad! Oh, God, have mercy upon her, for the world would have none. They would put her in some dreadful place with a horrible keeper, like Mrs. Randolph, to watch every movement of her growing insanity. She could not endure it. Death were a hundred times more preferable. Toward the fatal spot where her mother had died ran poor Carla, and the horrified Pat, who had expected nothing so awful as this, saw her nearing the cliff, and, hastening his own flying feet, seized her just as her intention was only too apparent in the name of merciful mother is it mad ye are miss carla he cried yes mad she said as she turned a white terrified face toward pat 
and then she fainted in his arms. "'Oh, Begora, what'll I do now?' Pat cried aloud. "'Here's poor Miss Carla, dead entirely, and the devil a soul here. "'If I take her home, it'll kill the old professor. "'Faith, I'll take her to the martyr, for it's himself that knows best what to do for her.' And so, raising Carla gently in his arms, he carried her to the horrified doctor, who was just preparing to start for Wilmot Villa to see that the girl was still comfortably asleep under the influence of the opiate he fancied she had taken. Judge then of his dismay when her unconscious form was laid on his sofa by the voluble Pat Corcoran, from whose explanation he soon guessed that Carla had been to the vindictive woman of Rose Cottage and learned the secret her friends had judiciously hidden from her. Of course, his first efforts were towards Carla's restoration to consciousness which he soon effected with the assistance of the old housekeeper, and then, when she had been placed in an easy-chair and they were alone, she turned her weary eyes to his grieved face and asked, "'What is the matter with me, doctor?' John Bengerfield saw that the time was past for concealment, and he took the weak, trembling little hand in his own as if it had been a child's. "'My dear Carla, you have been doing very wrong. You have been visiting a vile woman who has told you a lot of lies.' "'Oh, I remember. I am mad.' And the disengaged hand flew to her poor head. "'You are nothing of the sort. You are as sane as I am. And if you should ever become mad, it will be because you will not listen to those who love you.' "'Was it not true, then? Was my mother not mad? And did she not throw herself over the cliff?' "'So far, my dear Charlie, I am sorry to say she told you the truth,' the doctor gravely replied. "'And it runs in the blood. Oh, doctor, you know it does. "'Now will you be calm, Charlie, and listen to me? "'Your poor mother's insanity proceeded from an injury to her head "'after you were born, so you could not possibly inherit it. "'You know how nervous your father is, "'because your mother was nursing you when her brain gave way. "'He has always had an anxious fear for your health. "'I must tell you all about it now, Charlie, "'though it is a painful subject indeed.' Since that wretched being has wreaked her revenge on you, everything must be laid bare to counteract the effect of her lies. What revenge? she asked wonderingly. Don't you guess who she is, Charlie? I did since I saw her writing last night. Eighteen years have changed her, and she is disguised. But she is Louisa Carnaby, your poor father's second wife. Oh, cried poor Carla, as she hid her eyes with her hands. The professor did a very foolish thing when he married that woman, the doctor went on. But as he did it for your sake, you must not be hard on him in your thoughts. The creature managed to persuade the professor that people were talking about her remaining in his house after your mother's unfortunate end, and as she had succeeded in attaching your baby self to her, with her own end in view, to prevent you from losing a favourite nurse, he was inveigled into a private marriage. A few months after that marriage, she was expelled from your father's house by me. How? With deep interest in her young, pale face. She was vile in every way, and I knew it. She was extravagant, and led our poor professor the life of a slave. At last I discovered that she had forged my name to a large cheque, and I made her disappearance for ever from Wilmot Villa, the price of her immunity from punishment. If she had dreamed that I should have recognised her, she would never have ventured here, but before twelve hours are over her head, she shall meet the punishment she deserves. Now, Charlie dear, the old woman will give you some wraps, and I shall drive you home. 
just think of the consternation should your absence be discovered mrs randolph made a good many odd preparations ere she started on her excursion one might think she contemplated a journey on the early morrow already had some trunks been packed and now her toilet apparatus was consigned to a handbag and a travelling dress and wraps laid ready at hand certainly a boat touched at the pier early on the morning of the following day but if mrs randolph hoped to sail with her how dreadfully different was her fate professor wilmot sat at his precious manuscript he was preparing notes for the compilation of the seventy-fifth chapter of his great work and was serenely happy charlie was as he believed sleeping away her headache and dr bengerfield was coming to spend the evening with him and do a few sheets of copying for him all this was immensely pleasant judge then of the poor man's consternation when the door opened softly and mrs randolph entered the room now the poor man was the most amiable of beings save where his great work was concerned and although he disliked this woman instinctively he gave no hint of such a feeling since his charlie had taken a fancy to her in her presence he felt a chill as if a cold wind from the sea were blowing into his veins and the glitter of the widow's eyes through her spectacles was to him odious as the gleam of a serpent's eyes he would rather have seen any one in the whole world than mrs randolph that night yet there she stood with the door shut behind her the widow advanced glidingly to a chair and seated herself almost close to the professor so that the rays of the lamps fell full upon her face you did not expect a visit from me this evening my dear professor she said in such an odd manner that he looked at her steadily over his spectacles ere he replied no madam i did not but i presume you have heard of my dear child's slight indisposition and have kindly called to see her she laughed in his face throwing up her chin as she did so in a manner so familiar that the old gentleman shuddered he glanced at the door helplessly looking for the entrance of some relief and he grasped the seat of his chair as though to rise and mrs randolph repeated the laugh i see you are beginning to open your eyes my dear karl where have they been all this time that you have not recognized your wife slowly she took off the gold-rimmed spectacles and put them in her pocket as she went on i am changed i know at least to the eye but i assure you i am the very same at heart let me see it is somewhere about eighteen years ago since you permitted your dear friend john to turn me out of this very room and out of the house which was my home by right you did not even settle a poor sum on me to keep me from the bitterness of poverty but with a few pounds in my hand turned me out on the world for a simple indiscretion your friend john bengerfield was indeed good enough to say that my talents were a fortune in themselves well they did not bring me much but they have brought me to my revenge on you and yours at last carlo wilmot revenge the professor gasped staring at the author of his years ago trouble with a horror that seemed reflected in the spectacles that rested on his sharp nose yes revenge i have waited years for it that the blow might strike harder you idolize this soft-headed girl of yours carlo wilmot she is next to your great work the object of your dearest affections do you know where she is now do you know what i have done i have told her the story of her mother's madness and death and she has followed her over the deep cliff your darling is being dashed about the waters of the bay for the sharks to eat and i should like to see them doing it with a gasping groan the professor staggered to his feet 
the poor old man's face grew ghastly as death, and his weak knees trembled beneath him. What he would have said or done it is hard to say, but at that moment a strong hand was laid upon his shoulder, and John Bengerfield stood face to face with the triumphant woman. Do not believe her, my dear old friend. She lies as she has always done. Our Charlie is safe in the drawing-room, and you shall see her in an instant, when I have relieved you of this fiend's presence. Go, he cried, to the now doubtful woman, as he pointed toward the door, while his face was ablaze with passion. Go, it is night and dark, but I warn you that daylight will find you in prison. Let her go, John, the old professor said, as he fell back into his chair. Let her go, for I see death in her face, and the Lord himself will punish her. Something in the professor's prophetic words fell upon the woman's heart like a touch of ice. With a look of fiendish malice, she turned to the door and went out. Within, there was warmth and comfort, the pleasant lamplight, the glowing fire. Without, the bleak wind was growing loud and damp over the moaning sea, and voices met her as she passed the fatal cliff. Unearthly voices, of dreadful meaning they were. What could they be saying? Had her life been all a failure, then? Had it passed as a dream, to end in darkness and death? Was crime hidden in every recess of her wicked life? Was it true that a day of terror would come, when the past would meet her face to face, and she should not be able to turn away from it? Bah! Away with those morbid fancies! She had been balked of her revenge, but her heart was iron still. A light burned in the parlour of the cottage as she regained her home, and the woman Barton opened the door to her knock. Mrs. Randolph went in without a word, and the woman followed her to the light. Rigid as ever, but with a fierce light in her sunken eyes, Barton stood and glared at her now nervous mistress as she tossed her bonnet and shawl to the floor, and then turned angrily toward her. "'What do you want, woman? What do you stand staring there for? Have you got no light yet?' "'I want no light for the work I have to do,' was the stern reply. "'Nor do you. There is no light in the grave.' Coming as these unexpected words did, so close upon the professors, and upon the weird voices that had followed her on the wild sea winds homeward, this awful hint staggered the woman's shaken nerves, and she was speechless. Nor did Barton's movements reassure her. The woman was drawing the odd-looking cap from her head, and shaking her long hair over her shoulders. Now do you know me, Louisa Carnaby? Yes, Louisa Carnaby knew her now, and with a shriek of terror she shrank back from the resuscitated madwoman. Yes, it is I. You all thought me dead, eh? Well, I did not die. When I threw myself over the cliff, heaven floated me against a returning fishing boat, and I was placed on a passing and outward-bound vessel. I had forgotten who I was and where I came from. My own name was a forgotten sound to me. I never knew it until tonight, Louisa Carnaby, when I heard your communication to my daughter. Yes, you need not stare at me, for your doom is sealed. It was not for nothing that you told my Carla her mother was mad. I was ten years in a madhouse at Kaleo, and heaven directed me here to kill you. With the bound of a tiger, the speaker was on the terror-stricken woman. With her long hair streaming wildly around her, and the fierce flush of insanity in her eyes, the madwoman seized her victim. What chance had the unfortunate woman against the awful strength of that little bony form? There were muffled screams and awful words, but the wind blew them away seaward, and they were lost in oblivion. In accordance with the doctor's repeated instructions, 
Tom Corcoran returned to watch Rose Cottage after he had driven Carla home. But alas, for the vanity of human promises, he did not return without that tin flask in the manger. He was cold, and truth to say, hungry, and it was very hard lines to stop two hours on that cold cliff without a taste of whisky to keep the cold out. So he tasted until the flask of whisky was empty, and then he fell asleep under the rose hedge near Mrs. Randolph's cottage. He never knew what aroused him, but he did awake with a horror of he knew not what, hanging around him. With a bound he was on his feet in the strong wind that now blew in from seaward. Without waiting to think, he started homeward, making the best of his way along the cliffs. Up the face of the rocks a phosphorant gleam illumined the darkness. It came from the breaking foam of the great rolling waves at the foot of the cliff. As Tom reached the spot where he had seized poor Carla, he saw two forms struggling on the verge, and at last a scream that sounded like the despairing cry of a lost spirit. To the last day of his death he believed he had seen an apparition. Mrs. Randolph was seen no more at Rose Cottage, and the doctor concluded she had flown from his threatened arrest. The landlord seized her effects for rent, and no more was ever heard of the fascinating widow. Was it not well that, to the day of her death, poor tried Charlie never knew the real termination of her mother's career? Wilmot Cottage knows the professor no more, and Dr. Bengerfield practices in a faraway district. Strange to say, he has got a fair wife now, whom he calls Charlie, and an old gentleman, in a velvet skull-cap and spectacles, sits in the study and composes a yet unfinished but great work entitled The Cosmical Structure of Plumo's Life. End of story.